Welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Last time we started talking about the trash stratum and we got into some of the ideas that we wanted to explore, but not all. So here we are again, discussing it. Hanging out at the trash stratum. Right. Hanging out at the dump. It, I was thinking about it. It occurred to me that the first time this line from Philip K. Dick's work, the symbols of the divine show up in our world initially at the trash stratum. The first time that came up was in the D&D episode. And I, I brought it up because I was trying to defend the claim that Tabletop role-playing games represented a kind of, of like a major cultural innovation or achievement of late 20th century culture. And that this was very far from apparent to almost everyone, including D&D players. I mean, most of my friends, I mean, I don't think any of the friends I play with would agree with that. But I think it's true. And so did the people who wrote the introduction to that book that I mentioned, like Dungeons and Dragons and Philosophy. And then I was thinking about what it is that makes it so unapparent that this might be the case. And I think it has to do with the ridiculousness of what Dungeons and Dragons represents. It's like the most generic fantasy cliched kind of thing, right? It's, it's all like unicorns and dragons and dwarves and knights and that sort of thing. And I have to admit that if I were to watch a Dungeons and Dragons movie, I would probably be bored. Like I have no tolerance for that sort of generic stuff. I can't read. I don't read fantasy novels with some exceptions. I could never read a book about a knight fighting a dragon, you know, unless it were done differently. But I love doing it at the table in D&D because it's like a technology for exploring cliches. It's a way to look at them. And I was just as we were preparing for the second excursion into the trash stratum, I was thinking about cliches and that trash in the cultural sense of dead art, like art that offers nothing new, kitsch, mm-hmm. um, genre, formula, that sort of thing. This was part of our conversation, too. We, we were discussing bringing up really crappy movies that we love. And that touches on another theme we've discussed, too, that the way that that even something like Avatar might end up being a work of art when its ideological framework has disappeared. And all of a sudden, it's, it becomes an artifact. And then it, it gains a new, unimaginable now like kind of value. I think talking about cliches and kitsch and camp might be fun. Absolutely. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? This phenomenon, which I guess includes camp, but we can think of the phenomenon itself as being much broader and it has to do with the decomposition of stereotype totally stock totally generic images and fictional tropes artistic moves that have become so routinized that they're not artistic at all it's just the execution of an inevitable pattern there is something marvelous hanging out in even the most fly-blown exhausted pieces of culture. There's a guy named Jack Smith who now is honored as a kind of godfather and predecessor or like a pioneer, like a pioneer of queer cinema and queer aesthetics. A guy named Jack Smith. He's best known for a film called Flaming Creatures, which was uh, prosecuted for obscenity back in the 1960s and made a big stir in New York avant-garde circles Susan Sontag wrote an essay about it. Jonas Mikas, the film critic for The Village Voice and kind of a big figure in American independent film, he held up Jack Smith as a kind of a, almost a saint of independent art film. Smith himself was like chronically penniless, made friends and then bitter enemies with everybody he ever worked with. He left a trail of wreckage and broken collaborations behind him. He was, by all accounts, a rather difficult person to work with. But he had this extraordinary vision. He was in love with, fascinated by, fascinated in the old-fashioned sense, like hypnotized by what he liked to call moldy glamour, the glamour of yesteryear, 
which for him in the late 50s and the 1960s meant, you know, Hollywood spectacles from the 1930s and 40s. He particularly was obsessed with this one pretty minor screen siren, a woman named Maria Montes, who you can see in a film called Cobra Woman, which sometimes shows up on YouTube. A very campy, very silly jungle flick from a, mm, 44, I think. Anyway, he loved these films, like loved these films. And these films are campy and corny as anything to us now. And Smith wrote this wonderful piece for the Little Mag film culture right around the time that he was working on this film, Flaming Creatures. And it's a wonderful piece. It's called The Perfect Filmic Appositeness of Maria Montez. And it's a kind of free association manifesto about finding, if not symbols of the divine, at least some kind of tremendous imaginal power on the trash stratum. For Jack Smith, in fact, the trash stratum was where it was at. He had very little patience for, I guess you could say, official culture, the, even those parts of the avant-garde that were sort of discovered and approved of by, you know, the sort of cultural mandarins of the time. Yeah, gatekeepers. Maybe this is, yeah, the gatekeepers. Maybe this is one reason why he ended up quarreling with everybody who ever tried to work with him or do him a good deed. He ended up in a lifelong vendetta against Jonas Mikas, for example, who did more than anybody to further his career. Um, he's somebody who seemed on a really deep philosophical level simply to object to being on the winning side. What he loved was art of loss, the losers of the art historical game. He loved the detritus, the aesthetic island of broken toys. Is that what it's called in that weird Santa Claus movie? Is it the island of broken toys or the island of lost toys? The island of misfit toys. Ah, the island of misfit toys. That's right. But they're, yeah. but they're all they're all broken or badly designed or whatever. Right. His imaginary paradise, his utopia, was a kind of Montez land, and this is a cinematic, aesthetic island of misfit toys. And so his piece, the perfect filmic appositeness of Maria Montez, is an ode to that imaginary paradise. And I love the way this begins. I'm going to read a couple of bits from it. He starts, at least in America, a Maria Montez could believe she was the Cobra Woman, the Siren of Atlantis, Scheherazade, etc. She believed and thereby made the people who went to her movies believe. Those who could believe did. Those who saw the world's worst actress just couldn't, and they missed the magic. Too bad. Their loss. Their magic comes from the most inevitable execution of the conventional pattern of acting. And I love that line. The magic comes from the most inevitable execution of the conventional pattern of acting, because that is pretty much what you were talking about before, where we're trying to talk about like bad art or stuff that nobody can take seriously, stuff that is worn out, exhausted, something that is no more than a pure creation of generic expectations. For Smith, the magic of Maria Montez is that she is able, through belief, to inhabit that inevitable execution of the conventional pattern of acting in such a way as to give it life. And if we, as worshippers at the shrine of Maria Montez, if we believe too, then we get to see the Cobra Woman. Not the film The Cobra Woman. Not Maria Montez as the Cobra Woman. No, we get to see the Cobra Woman. Yep. And you might say that the Cobra Woman doesn't exist. And Jack Smith says, basically, you're wrong because magic. Jack Smith, he's speaking of film in a way that's somewhat cliche. We talk about like the magic of the movies and we all understand that we're speaking metaphorically. But what Jack Smith is talking about is the magic of the movies, this actual literal magic that through a kind of intense belief, both on the part of the artist, but also on the part of those very few in the audience who are capable of matching that passion with their own, 
there is a real change in the world that, as he puts it, uh, just one of her atrocious acting size suffused a thousand tons of dead plaster with imaginative life and truth. And that's the magic trick, right? Finding, I mean, I'm sure Jack Smith would laugh if he were alive to hear me say finding God in the detritus, finding God at the trash stratum. But that's kind of what he's talking about. But he's not talking about God, capital G God, the one God, the true God. Jack Smith is an instinctive polytheist. He believes in many gods. And the God he has chosen as his own personal deity is Maria Montez. For him, there's something akin to a kind of pagan worship that takes place at the movies. And his meditation on the perfect filmic appositeness of Maria Montez is basically a treatise on how even these exhausted, fly-blown, as Smith liked to say, moldy pieces of art are capable of turning into the most radiant, powerful yeah. images. Yeah, it's. Uh, I read the piece when you sent it to me a long time ago now, and I, I really like it, but what stands out for me, what, what I get from it, is he's, he's talking about Maria Montez. He's not making an argument for campy Hollywood films from the 30s in general. He's making an argument for this one singular artist and saying that she somehow alchemically transformed the films she appeared in into gold, into gold right? And it was... he. I mean, the, the essay is very stream of consciousness, and it's it's very hard to kind of break down exactly what his argument is. But I get the sense that what he's saying is that in her naive rapture, in her real rapture, like, full blown faith in film, in the magic of Hollywood, in the promise of America, all that that energy that she brought to her work is present in the films. And it's, it's not like her lack of talent or her lack of real acting chops or whatever. Good perfs, as he called them, I believe. It's not like those things were an impediment for her. No, it's that failure is part of what makes this work. It's part of what makes her so divine. Yep. As he, as he writes, to admit of Maria Montez's validities would be to turn on to moldiness, glamorous rapture, schizophrenic delight, hopeless naivete, and glittering technicolored trash. I love right. that line. Yeah. What he loves is authenticity, you know? And, yeah. and I think that's something you'll see a lot in that kind of underground cinema scene, that, that scene where people get really into these fringe artists who are doing their... Like, I think it's a dangerous territory because there is a lot of crap there, but there's a lot of gold there too. What I get from this article isn't so much that the real art is always at the trash stratum because I don't think that's true. What I get from it is No, and I don't think that's and I don't think that's what he's arguing either. I don't know. I, I It's a very Yeah, I agree. It's a very I mean Jack Smith maybe partly because he's such he's sort of radically polytheist in the sort of James Hillman sense, just a, a messy pluralist thinker. I think he would never want to ever make a general or synthetic or universal statement about art. He's really interested in talking about his experience and talking about the possibilities afforded a kind of rapture by trash art, right. trash film. Right. And it's, uh, you know, it's radically individual in that way. And I, but I think he also enacts a kind of healthy skepticism about official channels, the official channels of art. Like that, oh, yeah, I think, cer certainly. I think that's an essential move you need to make in order to see that true art, like, it's funny because... There's a reactionary mode on both ends. We were talking about Roger Scruton this week, right? The classicist, mm -hmm. the kind of like the lover of classical art who thinks that everything modern or everything pop or everything trash is garbage, is unworthy. And, you know, you need to go to Bach or you need to go to Shakespeare and you go to Tolstoy to get real art. And everything that's coming right. out now is just de facto shit because it doesn't perform at that level of... Uh, yeah. A virtuosity, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then you'll have the reactionary, the trash stratum, the, the grovelers in, in the junk, you know, who just basically love stuff that's bad. Like it's that's yeah. some kind of some kind of rebellious move they make against culture, against tradition, and that therefore, you know, the kind of John Waters types. I have like very little patience for that sort of thing. That kind of like. 
look at us. We're playing with shit. You know, it's look how beautiful it is. <laughs> we talked about the last time <laughs> that, that kind of like, you know, it, it's just it's so reactionary on both sides. The thing is that we can talk about true art without taking one side or the other. The true art always occurs as a singularity. Therefore, whether it occurs in a tradition or whether it occurs outside of a tradition and a reaction to a tradition or in some underground current, all those things are incidental. And what I like about Jack Smith's piece is that he's he's drawing out of the trash stratum a symbol of the divine, Maria Montez. And he has very good reasons to believe that. And he explains those reasons. And he tells us it's not a fetishizing of junk or kitsch. You know, it's not that. That's not what he's about. I really like that. I really, um, I really appreciate that on his part. Now, I haven't seen his films, but I'd be interested to see what he came up with as a filmmaker. Before we move on, I just have to read out my favorite line from this essay. Sure, we sure. can't leave oh, absolutely. the topic without me reading this. Corniness is the other side of marvelousness. Damn, I love that. This corniness is the other side of marvelousness. What person believing in a fantasy can bear to have its other side discovered? That to me is a pretty deep line, actually. Yeah, it speaks to the dichotomy of commitment and perspective that we've discussed before. I don't know if we discussed it on the show, but my wife Leslie has this old, uh, and her friend Kate have this binary they dis- they use all the time: perspective versus commitment. In life, if you commit to something, if you go whole hog into something, you automatically on some level end up looking ridiculous or you're, you're yeah. susceptible to that accusation that you're, being, you're just being ridiculous. You're believing in something too much, whereas this, the kind of hipster attitude is always to choose perspective over commitment. So yep. whenever you commit yep. to something, whenever you engage in a passion as if it really matters, as if everything depended on it, There is always a way to see that as corny, right? Because you're falling for something you could just as well just overlook. You don't need to be that into it. You know, what that suggests to me is like that there's a certain kind of ironic culture consumption where you are collecting objects of trash culture and kind of watching them in that mystery science theater 3000 way. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen that show uh, where you're turning it into a like an opportunity to style on it, to to make wisecracks at its expense. And what you're doing when you do that is you are maintaining that perspectival uh, stance. You are standing outside of the perspective of the film and showing the ways in which what it commits to is ridiculous. When we're doing that MST3K style thing, we are adopting what Kenneth Burke called a perspective of perspectives, which for him was basically the definition of what irony is. You become aware of perspectives as perspectives, and you're watching a silly film, you're aware of it as a particular partial, perhaps kind of stunted or broken or risible perspective within a much wilder field of possibilities, and you represent your critical discreet judging MST3K-like position is from a position outside that perspective, right? That's the point at which you find the other side of the marvelousness, the the other side of a fantasy. You know, for, for Jack Smith, fantasy, true fantasy is the marvelous. They're almost synonyms. Yeah. And he's, when he says, what person believing in a fantasy can bear to have its other side discovered? The thing is that you can do that with any work of culture. You can adopt a perspectivalist stance from outside of it. And from which point any work of art is shrunk to at least simply the local manifestation of a particular historical situation. Right. It's the historicist move of looking at like, well, you know, this Bach cantata is written for a very particular purpose. And that purpose in turn is given by the Lutheran church as it existed in the 18th century, blah, blah, blah. If you love that piece, you are never going to be content to reducing it simply to, say, its historical position. Uh, You're never going to be satisfied with saying like, oh, that's just several tons of dead plaster. That's not a jungle island with an erupting volcano. Any fantasy has this other side of ridiculousness, the the side where you see the wires, right? right? And everything 
is vulnerable in that way. This is one reason why hipster irony is so durable is because it's a way of remaining invulnerable. If you always dance around on perspectives and never touch down on any of them, you will never be in the position of somebody who believes in a fantasy and has the other side, the corny side of that fantasy discovered, right? Yep. And yet the problem is that you've paid too high a price for your inviolability because you've dealt yourself out of having any kind of authentic experience with art at all. And that ultimately is what Jack Smith is saying. All you smarty pants critics out there who think you're so superior to these corny old jungle flicks starring Maria Montez, as he says right at the beginning, too bad for them, they missed the magic. And I, I can't help but feel this is one of the smartest things anybody has written in recent decades about culture because I see this every day as a professor. People who have adopted that perspectivalist, ironic perspective of perspectives viewpoint, and it's great for an academic, for professionalized intelligence, where we're constantly kind of sandbagging and fortifying our little fortresses of scholarship, and we're trying to make ourselves impregnable. You know, of course you want to make your commitment to works of art a deep, dark secret that you never let anybody in on. But the problem is, it seems to me, that then, as I say, the price is too high. You're dealing yourself out of the art experience, which is one reason why you find a lot of humanities professors, you know, literature professors who never read novels unless they absolutely have to. Uh, Musicologists who actually secretly don't like music that much. You know, because it's been professionalized out of us, because uh, we're being trained to miss the magic. The magic can exist because the magic would make you vulnerable. Yeah. You just remind me of something. So I once um, was with a good friend in Toronto, and uh, she had never seen Vertigo, Hitchcock's film, Vertigo. Great movie. Yeah. Um, So we watched it. And she was cringing the whole way through. She was embarrassed for the actors, embarrassed for Hitchcock because of the acting style and the the cutting style, just the way the films were made. She couldn't get into it because it was so campy to her. Stagey. It doesn't seem real. Yeah. Um, I was really surprised, actually, because although I could see what she's talking about, I mean, I love the movie. What can I say? It was I felt embarrassed for myself. I felt ashamed. To, to show, I was like, "Oh, am I just falling for some?" You know, at that time, I was starting to doubt my own taste and my own, you know, artistic. It was Hitchcock's vision, but I mean, I I dug it, and I I I started to doubt to doubt myself. Yeah, but every time we dig a work of art, it's to some extent us tuning into. The wavelength of that work of art but it's also us opening up a little door in our own soul little a little room we didn't right. know we had like i firmly believe that getting to know art is a, is you're building a soul you're building a yeah a self it's not the only way to build a soul but it's a pretty damn well, good i feel one. very confident about that now looking back and i'm thinking you know in a way it is the jokes on them because this perspectival attitude this kind of ironic hipster attitude that, you know, nothing can phase me. Everything is historically determined. Therefore, nothing has inherent value. Nothing has inherent meaning. Therefore, I will stand here and judge your attempt at making anything matter. That requires a perspective on its own, right? The perspectival rejection of commitment requires a commitment to perspective, (laughs) ironically. So in sitting there and... And that's Dostoevsky's Underground Man. Exactly. Caught in an endless maze of mirrors, endless self-reflexivity, you know, uh, reflections of reflections stacked out to the furthest horizon. That's the Underground Man. Eventually, perspectivism becomes like the snake that eats its tail. You become aware that your own perspectivism is itself a perspective, and then you try to relativize that. And then you try to relativize that new ground you're on and so on. It can actually turn into a kind of intellectual vertigo or psychological vertigo. It can even be almost a kind of mental illness. Right. It can get there. Yeah. Okay. So between me at that time, naively loving vertigo and my friend who was 
just had this ironic detachment that enabled her to laugh at Vertigo and almost like ridicule the idea that anyone ever saw anything in this movie. Who was seeing the real movie, right? Well, right. it's too bad. I wish I'd been the ironic hipster in the example because I don't want to say that I was right. But <laughs> I, think that, <laughs> I think that while you're laughing at a work of art, that's kind of with a definition of hubris, right? Hubris is the decision that your own faculties, your own perspective is enough for you to decide on what means what. And right. the gods strike you down as a result. You've already lost. The minute you step into that hubristic mode, you're already paying the price for hubris. That's the idea of tragedy in Greek theater, right? Like that there's no escape from it. You can't win because you've already decided that a partial view is a view from nowhere. And that's just not re what reality affords us. It just doesn't, it's just not on the table. Actually, by bringing up Hitchcock, that's a nice little coincidence. There's another piece that I want to name check by a guy named Charles Ludlam. And Ludlam was a playwright who early on was a friend and then inevitably an enemy uh, or like an ex-friend of Jack Smith's. But Ludlam shared with Smith what he called the theater of the ridiculous. That was an idea that Smith and Ludlam had in common. Not a theater of the absurd, uh, and not a theater of cruelty, a la Artaud, but theater of the ridiculous. Art that dares the ridiculousness of its blind side, the, the blind side of commitment, of having a perspective, right? And it's theater that makes that ridiculousness, uh, blows it wide open, you know, wears it on its sleeve, makes it available for all the world to see. That is a kind of camp. But in a short essay on camp that Ludlum wrote, he makes a really interesting distinction. He talks about how camp is a mode of seeing. And it's a mode of seeing that has a very particular meaning for gay people, particularly pre-Stonewall gay people, for whom communicating on a level unavailable to, you know, like the normies around you, uh, was actually really important and something of a matter of self-preservation. And he writes at the end of this essay, is talking about how he hates what camp has become and what for him camp has become is exactly what you described, this kind of like this weightless irony or this, this self-protective stance of irony. He writes, the worst thing that happened to camp was that the straight world took this cult word and decided that they were going to do camp. Then you got something that has nothing to do with camp. There's no vision. The perfect example, let's say I was going to camp on Hitchcock. I would get some editors. Everything about Hitchcock is the way the movie looks, the incredible editing. The juxtaposition is highly synthetic and artificial, yet it's so compelling. That should have been the look of high anxiety. I should say high anxiety was an attempt at a camp parody of Hitchcock. Ludlum continues, instead, High Anxiety was a totally flaccid movie. Everything that's so great about Hitchcock was not there, except that it made reference to one of his movies occasionally. There was no essence in it. The thing that's really horrible is heterosexual camp, a kind of winking at you, saying, I don't really mean it. And that, I think, is really interesting, because I think he's right. I mean, the kind of mainstream camp... Um, I shared this with you once. One of my favorite Onion newspaper articles of all time has a headline that's something like, ironic porn purchase leads to unironic masturbation. Unironic ejaculation. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it was. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, which which is it's really funny to me because it, yeah. uh, you can't be too ironic with your pants down around your ankles, I suppose. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we think camp is one of those things where we're like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. That's where you, like, make fun of shit movies, you know, like the Nostalgia Critic, this dude on YouTube. Um, but no, actually, the way Ludlam and Smith thought of camp 
is closer to nutty old PKD talking about the symbols of the divine showing up in the trash stratum. Lord Lemon Smith wouldn't necessarily talk about the trash stratum as a place where, you know, images of God or, or like the will of God is made manifest. But it is where they say you will find the marvelous. Right. It's where you will find fantasy. And they take that fantasy really seriously. Whereas a guy who's just like, hey, let's just laugh at the shitty movie. The guy who's winking at you saying, I don't really mean it, is actually after almost exactly the opposite thing. One is after commitment and the other is after the very opposite of commitment. Right. It's a very important point because let's take camp as our example then. Let's continue with that. Well, how did camp start? It started with queer artists unable to express their singular personal visions in any official suitably funded avenue. And so they resorted, right. they, they did it as they could with the resources they had at their disposal and with the talent they had access to. And they created a new aesthetic, which had a, a measurable effect in the culture, which had an impact. And therefore, once the, the machine starts to try to appropriate and reproduce the success, then of course, what they lack is the vision that drove them to begin with the vision that drove these works. Like, you can't reproduce vision. You can't repeat it. That's why Hitchcock is impervious to all the attempts to slander him and to campify him. There is something that can happen, though, and this is a problem. There's the the, the kind of parody, but there's also the attempt to reproduce. So, so basically, Hitchcock kind of wrote the book on how to make a suspense film, and and a lot of films that came out after Hitchcock would, you know, repurpose his techniques and his his methods and try to get a similar effect, but would do it without the singular vision that only Hitchcock could deliver. So those films look like kind of a a weird parody of Hitchcock. But once you if you've been raised on those films, whether they're actual parodies or just failed attempts to capture what Hitchcock did, then you see Hitchcock. It's very hard to see him for the first time. Because you're seeing all these tropes that you've, you know, you've seen these tropes a million times done badly. And therefore, you're, it's hard to see what the original was like. Like all the copiers that come around, like you'll have an original come up and then everybody starts to copy him or her. And then all those copies are kind of a swarm of shit flies surrounding, <laughs> surrounding <laughs> the original. And you kind of have to like swat your you way, to swat you away. have to swat them away to see what was there. But what was there is still there. And this is one way that culture, there are two sides to culture, obviously, there are two sides to everything. There's a side of culture that exists in order to, there's this great line from um, James Carson's book, Finite and Infinite Games, which is a book I absolutely adore. Uh, he says, art galleries don't exist in order to make art available. They exist in order to protect us from art, to protect us against it. Ah, that's a great line yeah, yeah. it's funny because i say there's a similar line in reclaiming art and i promise i swear i hadn't read infinite games before but i really believe this is true like that the critical apparatus that ensures that works of art are properly interpreted tagged placed in the you know that sort of thing is is in a sense in a way it's meant to protect us against it to to, totally. to sanitize it to to you know well, at least to foreclose its meanings, because one of the things I think ideologues and control freaks don't like about art is that art is so uh, is a, just an anarchy, a riot of meaning, right? Unregulatable meaning, exactly. And there's these fanatical classifiers, these I don't know, these traffic cops of the imagination who want to foreclose the things that art can be. I'm wondering if I can change the subject slightly and talk about a favorite piece of art that deals with the finding of divine symbols at the trash stratum. Sure. And that is a short story by Jorge Luis Borges, The Approach to Al-Mutazim. So The Approach to Al-Mutazim is a, in some ways typical Borgesian short story. Borges writes short stories that feel almost like philosophical thought experiments. This one takes the form of a book review of a book that doesn't exist, a book called The Approach to Al-Mutazim. But he uses it to explore the idea that's central to Dick's line, the symbols of the divine show up initially, the trash stratum. You know, the thing is that you can look at a piece of art that is unapologetically trash stratum, 
My own particular example is a exploitation movie by Herschel Gordon Lewis called She Devils on Wheels. <laughs> really not a great film, although we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Like, it's really bad. It's just a cheapy exploitation biker flick where the twist is that it's a, a gang of girl bikers who exploit men sexually just the way male bikers exploit women. So it's all very sexually titillating. And there's also like a messy and obviously fake decapitation that happens towards the end. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> but it's a piece of shit exploitation film. No more, no less. But this one stuck with me. Okay, so I'm watching this film in exactly that kind of lame way that I was just making fun of, that, like, I'm better than this film, so I'm inhabiting a perspective outside of the one it occupies. And yet, there's this one scene which is totally unremarkable. It's just sort of like, if you're going to do a biker exploitation flick, you got to show bikers riding their bikes, right? It's a sane affair. So... There's this scene that typical for low-budget exploitation films goes on way longer than it has to, where, you know, they set up a camera at a raceway and they had girls riding their bikes round and round the track and they just, you know, filmed a bunch of it and used as much as they could because got to fill out the 88-minute running time, right? Right. You know, he shot it at a certain time of the day in some dusty racetrack in the California Central Valley somewhere, Everything has this kind of quality of light as if it's been filtered through a bottle of amber beer. There's a moment where people are going round and round this track. It's actually really fucking boring, but like a cut to the face of somebody watching and the sunlight is on their face. And as I'm sitting there, it suddenly hits me what a radiantly beautiful image this is. Radiantly beautiful. It just, it skewers me right to the heart. The quality of light, just how things look, just the fact that you know that you're looking, even in that little view screen on YouTube, you're looking at images of real things that existed 50 years ago. You're looking at a little chunk of reality that is lit up in a way unintended by the director, because like... This is a film that's done fast and cheap. He's not intending beautiful effects with the light. He's not intending me to suddenly see a beatific image just for a second. But that's exactly what happened. It's almost like Andre Bazin's theory of film, where because each image of a film is showing you some object of reality, a little chunk of reality in a way that a novel doesn't, you're seeing things almost with the eye of God, or you see you yeah. can see the eye of God looking back at you through the film, right? Mm -hmm. Watching this film, I get a presentiment that out of this low milieu, there's a presentiment of something higher, or something that doesn't belong simply to the milieu of this film. It comes from somewhere else. Well, to get back to the story by Borges, the approach to Al-Mutazim, that's basically the story of the pretend novel that he's pretending to review. So I'm going to read a little bit from this. Its visible protagonist, Borges's voice of the book reviewer begins, its visible protagonist, we never learn his name, is a law student in Bombay. He disbelieves, blasphemously so, in the Islamic faith of his fathers. But at nightfall on the tenth night of the lunar month of Muharram, he finds himself in the center of civil tumult between Muslims and Hindus. And it describes an affray where the young man thinks he's killed a Hindu in this parade, and he flees. And where he ends up is in a scene of almost unimaginable filth and degradation. And actually, the description of the plot really reads like a kind of a crazy dream. We get this picture of this strange world that the unnamed protagonist has fallen into. And then from there, he makes it his business. He decides it's going to be his occupation to seek the very most abject, the very lowest rung of society. And so the book reviewer continues... A man, the incredulous and fugitive student whom we already know, falls among people of the vilest class and adjusts himself to them in a kind of contest of infamy. All at once, with the miraculous consternation of Robinson Crusoe faced with the human footprint in the sand, he perceives some mitigation in this infamy, a tenderness, an exaltation, a silence in one of the abhorrent men. It was as if a more complex interlocutor had joined the dialogue. 
He knows that the vile man conversing with him is incapable of this momentous decorum. From this fact, he concludes that the other, for the moment, is the reflection of a friend, or of the friend of a friend. Rethinking the problem, he arrives at a mysterious conviction. Some place in the world there is a man from whom this clarity emanates. Some place in the world there is a man who is this clarity. The student resolves to dedicate his life to finding him. The general argument is thus glimpsed. The insatiable search for a soul through the subtle reflections which this soul has left in others. In the beginning, the faint trace of a smile or of a word. In the end, diverse and increasing splendors of reason, of the imagination, and of good. In the measure that the men questioned have known al-Mutazim more intimately, in that measure is their divine portion the greater, though it is always clear that they are mere mirrors. Mathematical technicality is applicable. Bahadur's burdened novel is an ascending progression, whose final end is the presentiment of a man called Mu'tazim. The immediate antecedent of al-Mutazim is a supremely happy and courteous Persian bookseller. The predecessor of this bookseller is a saint. And the idea is that at the end of the novel, the man reaches a door and you can almost imagine an effulgent light emerging from the door and he is bidden to enter and there the novel ends. So we never actually meet al-Mutazim. What makes this fiction of Borges all the more interesting is that in the weary and slightly cynical tone of the reviewer, he continues to say that in a later edition of this novel, which has undergone some changes, he finds to his disappointment that the novel is made more explicitly allegorical. As he puts it, the novel sinks into allegory. Al-Mutazim is the emblem of God, and the punctual itinerary of the hero is in some manner the forward progress of the soul in its mystic ascent. And this is great because Borges is imagining what you're thinking, like, oh, this is an allegory of like the grace of God. But then Borges goes out of his way to have his reviewers say, nah, maybe a more interesting idea would be this. The conjecture that the Almighty is also in search of someone, and that someone in search of some superior someone, or merely indispensable or equal someone, and thus on to the end, or better, the endlessness of time. And I love that because he's painting a picture, a schema, of how you can be dwelling on some stratum that feels very far removed from anything other than its own materiality. The infamous low regions of society that this unnamed protagonist finds himself in is one that is dedicated only to a kind of a material existence, one by whatever infamous means come readily at hand. And yet out of this is a presentment of something that is not merely mired in that material state. And you can see how that could become a schema for some kind of fairly conventional idea of a ladder to God, some final summa, some ultimate meaning. But what's great is in a typical Borgesian fashion, he means to suggest that this finding that little shaft of light on the trash stratum doesn't ineluctably lead like an escalator up to the top floor. It might just keep leading you from one reflection of the divine to another, and so on in an endless cycle, which is awesome and which actually reflects back to what we talked about last time when we were talking about the Kabbalist theory of the universe and the way that when you get all the way down to the bottom, to Malkut, in some way you find yourself flipping up back to the top of the tree of life all over again. Right. Yeah, similar to the Order of Illusion story that I read from last time from uh, Ligotti. Oh, yeah, it's true. I didn't even think about very, that. Very, very similar. pieces we read in preparation for this was something Eric Davis wrote called The Alchemy of Trash, an article he wrote some time ago, I believe. 
Eric is interested in the spiritual traditions that have developed in California and a, a very particular kind of spirituality that he's become the kind of expert on, right? This Californian, uh, I guess it's a an offshoot of 19th century transcendental the transcendentalists in a way there's something very american about it this uh, this 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 spirituality that it developed at the what was imagined as the edge of the world the very end the place where the sun sets you know like in this article he starts off talking about california as a kind of a spiritual supermarket as a place where all these crazy esoteric ideas went mainstream and were available right out there. And he's traced in his work how, from the very beginning, Los Angeles in particular was driven by these esoteric ideas and how there's something about California that is inseparable from a promise of transformation, a promise of salvation or redemption. This is something that's been explored ad nauseum in many, many films and books and whatnot. Like, for example, Mulholland Drive by David Lynch is all about this promise that Los Angeles makes. You know, these this actress comes doughy-eyed and then discovers something very different from what she expected to, to find. But he calls, he calls California a mystic carnival. There's this, I'm going to read a little quote here. He says, there's a gnawing absurdity at the heart of this mystic carnival, this tacky tinsel town of snake oil simulacra. And the reason I bring this up is because I think it ties together what you just discussed there, the quest for the divine and the trash stratum, and what we were talking about earlier with Hollywood and camp and kitsch and all that stuff. So he writes, uh, there's a gnawing absurdity at the heart of this mystical carnival, this tacky tinsel town of snake oil simulacra. At its most extreme, L.A.'s restless sacred imagination grows violent and apocalyptic. Here, I think it's, it's an indirect reference to like Charles Manson, that sort of thing. At its most at its most banal, it becomes the spiritual supermarket, a Californian condition of mix and match cafeteria religion that has now gone global. But even the spiritual supermarket, with its Sufi audiobooks, Tibetan trinkets, and prepackaged ayahuasca vacations, has a truth to tell. That truth is that the universe is pluralistic down to its very marrow. There are many ways to God, and some of them dodge the big guy altogether. My way is not your way. And my way will probably change as my perspective and the self that holds that perspective changes. I found that really interesting. And this brings together a few themes that you brought up so far. You would describe Jack Smith as an instinctive polytheist. There's something in the very expression of Californian spirituality. Let's just call it New Age spirituality. This syncretistic borrowing from all these different cultures. Something about that expresses pluralism by nature. However, within the world of the New Age, every item you find in there, every book, all these trinkets, all these commodities that populate the spiritual marketplace, the spiritual supermarket, are always promising the same monistic transcendence, the transcendence that the pluralism would seem to negate. Do you understand what I'm saying? I see. Yeah, I, yeah. I do. That's the idea of the snake oil salesman. When I was a kid... My mom took me to this, I think it was called the Psychic Fair. It was a fair that happened in Ottawa every year where all these, you know, psychics would come and, you know, crystal salesmen and that sort of thing. And I, I, I loved it. I went, I thought I was, I couldn't believe it. I, I just, I dug it. And um, so I'd go around and I'd have my allowance and I'd buy a crystal and a tarot deck and a book. Your grade 10 hippie bag was like bulging no, this when is, you walked this out this is before there. grade 10, but yeah. You had to acquire a bag of holding. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that, that the hippie bag I had in grade 10 contained items that I got at the psychic fair for sure. So so the excitement of all these things being around you, all these, all these different traditions, these different methods, these different promises all out there, that promise is a kind of pluralism. It's like, wow, I get to pick my way. But... When you stop at any one of the kiosks, what you're sold is, this is the way. This, this is, is the answer. The way. This is the answer. Yeah. Yep. And that seems to be the kind of double bind that's at work in Hollywood and Calif that, that, that American dream thing, that kind of Californian spirituality thing, is that it expresses pluralism, but it communicates monism. I don't know. A very typical problem 
that people have in the spiritual supermarket is a kind of restless inability to just settle down and do any one thing, which on its own isn't necessarily a problem, but then feeling bad about it. It's like, okay, you know what it is? It's like FOMO, fear of missing out. It's spiritual FOMO. Let's take the psychic fair to be a figure, an allegorical figure for spirituality in the 21st century, you know, which pioneered in California, but as with so many things that are pioneered in California, that has now become the cultural condition of the modern West. Right. And increasingly everywhere else. If you say, let's say you have a mystical experience, you go camping and you have a sudden, fleeting, extraordinarily powerful feeling of oneness with nature. This happens all the time. In fact, read William James' Varieties of Religious Experience, which is stuffed full of accounts of people just living their lives and suddenly, boom, they're hit with a, like a mystical presentiment. It's almost like you get bitten by this bug, you know? You, you catch this fever. You suddenly are compelled to understand it or to try and recapture that feeling or to understand what it means or something. But this happens pretty often. Like, people get bitten by... A spiritual bug. And I hate the kind of cynical way people talk about this. Like, oh, you're just trying to look cool to your friends. You're just trying to come off like you're some evolved, enlightened master. Like, that's always going to be an imposture, you know? Yeah, sometimes it's an imposture. There's plenty of fake gurus who use that kind of snake oil to run scams. But, you know, there's a lot of really sincere people out there who maybe they've never spent one second thinking about spiritual stuff in their lives. But all of a sudden, something has happened on the inside that makes it really urgent that they go exploring. And so they do what everybody does in the 21st century. You fire up Google. They go shopping, yeah. Yeah, you go shopping. And you're like, well, what's the deity for me? You know, I grew up in a secular household and our Sunday observance was doing the New York Times crossword puzzle. I'm thoroughly secular. I have no connection to any church. Where do I go? And very often you'll choose somewhere. And as you say, you've got a multitude of options. So the carnival, the, the spiritual supermarket presents itself as a plurality, but each single item is selling unity. It's selling one thing. It's selling a singular vision of reality that it insists is the vision of reality. And then you end up with people who are, you know, converts to various traditions like convert Buddhists, convert Sufis, what have you. But the difference from just having been raised in these traditions to, you know, between that and encountering it in the context of the spiritual supermarket is that even if you pick up Zen Buddhism, for example, and you bring it to the front of the store and you plunk your money down and now you're, you've got Zen Buddhism, you've collected it or Sufism or whatever. Now that you've got it, you're in the same position as anybody who's bought any product, which is like buyer's remorse. You're like, well, shit. You know, instead of buying this, I could have bought that other thing. I could have bought Wicca. Yeah. You know, I, I could have bought the Norse pantheon. I could have, or whatever. I could have bought Greek Reconstructionism or Taoism or whatever. How do I know which one is right for me? Let's say you get really in a meditation. Well, what kind of meditation? There's all these different, are you going to do concentration practices? Are you doing insight practices? Mantras? Uh, visualization are you looking at candles you know following the breath what which one's best and so you know online spiritual communities are full of people who are constantly trying to answer this question but is this the best is this the most optimized spiritual technology you can see how that would be a problem right you're in a position of like this absurd consumerist position where the consumption is the product now that you've bought it and you have it, you don't want it because now you have it, right? You want the thing you didn't buy. This is a weird, probably the only time in human history where that's like a really widespread part of people's spiritual life is FOMO, fear of missing out. Well, I think that part of that is because the spiritual experience is in the shopping, right? Yeah, That's yeah. where the spiritual experience is in our culture. And ah, um, you reversed it up on us. <laughs> well, I think it just, just came to me as you're talking. It's like the decision to go into the marketplace and choose the selection that is involved in consuming. This has very little to do with just like 
purchasing the goods one needs. It's not like we're going to the general store and buying like, you know, a sack of salt for the winter. We're buying commodities and, and Marx's writings on the commodity are very interesting. He uses a language of magic to describe what a commodity is. A commodity is a fetish. It's something that's been framed out. It's, it's shiny. It's, it's transcendent. And when you're purchasing that commodity, you're purchasing a way of being. You're purchasing a little bit, a little shard of being itself. And um, so the pluralism of the spiritual marketplace, I think that the act of worship doesn't happen when after you've bought your Sufi audio book and you go and listen to it. It happens when you're buying the Sufi audio book. It happens when you're buying the Tibetan mm. trinket. That there's something, oh, so true. there's something spiritual about the act of shopping. And this is obviously true. I mean, if human beings are just basically spiritual creatures, creatures that seek a sense of belonging, a sense of peace with the world, a sense of uh, redemption or transcendence, well, there's no doubt that the shopping mall is a temple, right? People go shopping as a therapeutic religious experience. That's what they, yes. you know. And, um, and I think there's some of that in here. What Eric Davis likes about the spiritual marketplace is that in its very being, it affirms, and I'm quoting him, it's a conscious spiritual affirmation of relativism that gifts us with creative uncertainty and an openness to ordinary things that can become in the right hand simply extraordinary. There's a cynical way of looking at that. They're saying, well, that's, that's bullshit. You're just being sold crap and you're buying crap and you think it means something. But maybe there is something to this. Maybe there is a kind of, uh, mm. I don't know. Well, how about this? Try this on for size. That beatific vision that Eric just painted there mm -hmm. that you quoted, that only happens when you're shopping. Yeah. Because, you know, the thing is that this state of affairs does not necessarily lead to some kind of pluralistic openness. It can lead to exactly the opposite. You know, if you have that spiritual condition of like, like whenever you bite down on a perspective, let's put it in terms of the, the earlier part of this conversation, where you assume a perspective, you're no longer in that weightless perspective of perspectives right. on the outside, right? When you do that... There's always going to be some corner of your mind that is remains perspectivist that's still telling you this is but one possible perspective. Are you sure this is the right one? Are you sure this is the best one? Right. You know, and you can respond to that by shilly shallying and being that stereotypical wayward new ager who buys crystals and buys tarot decks and buys runes and is into the Ching, is into all these different world cultures and is, does ayahuasca trips and like, you know, treats the entire world and its spiritual traditions as a kind of a mix and match playset. The thing is, though, that, I mean, that's the stereotype, but it's just as likely that you're going to respond to this feeling of weightless possibility, not by cultural syncretism and borrowing from a lot of different things, but by doubling down on your one thing. Like, I bought Sufism. Sufism, motherfuckers, that's what I'm doing. Like, everything else is shit. This is the only way. I'm going to read every last book that will give me ironclad reasons to argue with people on the internet as to why Sufism is the one true path. Of course, you know, people who maybe have just been brought up in that tradition might look at some kind of wild-eyed convert Sufist. Uh, Sufi? Sufi. I don't know. Yeah, Sufi. Yeah, might look at some wild-eyed convert Sufi with alarm and be like, whoa, dude, that, ease up there. But that degree of fanaticism, I think, is actually something that is caused by this overabundant market. Yeah, it's a combination of overabundance. And I think there's something to be said for rootlessness, a kind of rootlessness in North America that mm -hmm. we are all... You know, we, it's like the cliche, we're a nation of immigrants, mm -hmm. right? They say it in Canada, they say it in the U.S. Well, we're also a nation of converts, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, not everyone, but there's a, a large portion of the population that is raised essentially in a completely secularized environment. And yet, <laughs> those people have the same spiritual instincts as anybody else, as the most, you right. know integrated Amazonian tribes person, you know, like you're, we're just all, yeah. we're all humans. So we're all living in this, this mind fuck. And at some point 
the mind fuckery of it will hit you and then you'll be needing something. And what do you, what can you do here? You need to shop for something. You need to pick something. Um, yeah. I remember I read a quote recently on Twitter. I don't remember who said it or what. I th- maybe it was William James or somebody else. It says like, I'm paraphrasing, but a convert to Islam and a convert to Christianity have more in common with one another than the convert with any person born in that tradition. There's like, yeah. like, conversion is its own religion because that's very good it's the religion of transformation it's the religion of transcendence um if you're of self self, and self-reinvention which of course is going to be very important in a society such as ours but this is a spirituality that both you and i have upheld or supported in our discussions the idea of soul making the idea that you need to pick your way there's something essentially western about this and very modern about it and absolutely and i think that a lot of our discussions tend to argue in its favor but there's also another side to it that we're seeing now which is a kind of like i don't know i i'm very ambivalent about it in a sense well everything seems to reverse into its opposite so we started this conversation talking about how that perspectivalist attitude of all-pervading irony is kind of toxic and it's kind of a shit bad faith way of approaching art and yet when i ventured the thought that the only time that we really have this pluralistic openness is when we're shopping and not at or after the point of sale yeah i'm really just saying that actually the most spiritually exalted state is precisely that moment of weightless perspectivism but do you mean that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I mean. Because I don't know. <laughs> I think that there is some truth to that. Like, this is typical of me. I've joked with you that monistic idealism is this black hole in the J.F. Martel universe. Anytime you get anywhere close to it, your idealist monism proximity alarm goes off and you just start getting pissed. <laughs> That's how I am with, like modernity like the the mental operating system of the modern right and you know there's this blog post i wrote announcing the birth of this podcast where i have like 12 axioms that i think of as the intellectual operating system the vernacular philosophy of moderns a philosophy that people carry around in their heads whether or no they have it or not usually they don't and I write those 12 axioms down with a satirical intent. Like, I'm like, yeah, fuck these 12 axioms of modernity. You know, like I have this attitude, like I want to hurt those axioms. I, you know, like we founded this podcast to some extent to question them all and to get people to be thinking like, well, shit, maybe, for example, mind is not simply a property of human brains, but maybe is emergent and all matter how about that shit you know we're you know we're asking those kinds of questions right so my you know construal of modernity to use charles taylor-esque language that's my proximity alert thing that goes off right i'm always bitching about the modern and talking about what moderns think and yet (laughs) the way we have these conversations the categories we use the style of thought we employ is I, I don't know if it would have been available to, at any other time in history. We are exemplary moderns. We are moderns trying to imagine a space outside of modernity, which is basically the most modern thing ever, right? Uh, and so, you know, irony and perspectivism is, I firmly believe, one of the fundamental noetic building blocks of modernity. And we started off giving it a rousing kicking, But at the same time, when we come around to the other end of our conversation and we're talking about spiritual plurality, well, maybe we discover some virtues in that very modern style of thought. And what this suggests is that even at our own personal trash stratum, like for me, it's the construal of modernity. For you, it's monistic uh, uh, idealism, right? That for each of us, that's our trash. That's what we reject as the refuse of our philosophical, metaphysical, spiritual world, right? What we cast off. 
And yet it's possible to sift through that trash stratum and find these little glimpses of the divine. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.